Hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. Now, again, there are many other families and there's details and people. There are over 500 people were involved in the battalion. And I've got time tonight to talk about maybe six or seven. Your ancestors surely had experiences to tell, some of which are written down. And others have no idea. So I am sorry if I can't talk about everything, but let me talk about just a couple of more. The Mormon Battalion was discharged from service in late July 1847 in Los Angeles. Most of them, well, they split up from there. Some of them went the southern route coming up from San Diego all the way up through and into Utah. But others of them traveled to the north, up near San Francisco or Sacramento, as it were. Let me talk about one specific family, Ezra and Sarah Fisk Allen. Ezra was 29 years old when he enlisted in the Mormon Battalion on July 16, 1846, from Mount Pisgah. He signed on as a musician in Company C. He had been a fifer in the Nauvoo Legion. And as he left, he left behind Sarah and two small children. He marched on to California. As you would well understand, Sarah struggled to survive, and all that she went through tried her faith and refined her soul. And she waited anxiously for her beloved's return, not knowing any idea when he would be back. In July of 47, Ezra was discharged from service. He started for home. They crossed over and reached the top of Donner Pass on their way to come down into the Salt Lake Valley when they were met by Captain James Brown, Sam Brannan, and emissaries from Brigham Young with a message saying, if you have provisions and supplies or your family's in the valley and you know it, Come on through. But if you don't, stay where you are, earn some money, gather supplies, and come on in the following season. We have no means here to support you, in effect, was what he said. Well, with that, Ezra Allen turned back and worked that winter, the winter of 47 and 48. On the 1st of May, 1848, anxious to go home, Ezra and eight others set out to cross the mountains. But the snow was still too deep to go over the Sierra Nevadas. They turned back. Meanwhile, Sarah began to anxiously anticipate the return of her husband. She said, and I quote, I looked forward to the time when his strong arms would lift these burdens of care from my shoulders. I gathered grapes from the lowlands near the river and made preparations making things, she said, that I thought would please him. All of that to welcome him home. But Ezra would not come home. 
after Ezra and his brethren turned back. They waited for the snows to melt, and then they fell in with the Holmes Company. These brethren were searching for a new route over the Sierra Nevadas. You see, to cross over Donner Pass, not only is it very high, but you have to cross the river something like 20 some times on that route. Surely there's got to be a better way over the mountain. Kit Carson had found a route over the mountains some distance to the south. Could that be made into a wagon road and turned into a passable route? Well, this party, the Holmes party, set out to find out. Ezra Allen, Daniel Browett, and another man set out as advanced scouts ahead of the party, the Holmes party, to go up and over and scout the way looking for the route. They didn't come back. They didn't return. Their company became worried and anxious. They set out up the trail and not far from the top, they found their comrades. Days before, June 27, 1848, Ezra Allen and Daniel Browett had made camp there, and while they were camped, they were, as it says in the record, attacked by Indians, tortured, and killed. Their bodies were tossed in a gully and covered partially with brush. When their brethren came up, they found them. It was a heavy and a sorrowful time. They took their bodies, gave them a proper burial. The brethren found in the bushes, there was a third man who was there, and I cannot remember his name. It'll come to me in just a few minutes, or one of you will tell me. But there was a third man, and they buried all three of them. And as they were preparing to leave, they found in the bushes a small leather coat. They recognized it as belonging to Ezra Allen. It was his coin and gold dust from the diggings there in California. The brethren pocketed the Pope and crossed all the way back to Winter Quarters. Back at Winter Quarters, Sarah Allen received word that some of the battalion boys had returned. Anxiously, she waited and hoped that it would be Ezra. And then word came that he was not coming back. Sarah felt that she would sink under the burden of grief and anguish. What could I do now, she wrote, but trust in God. I had no relative in the church, two small children, and a journey of a thousand miles before me. And then the brethren produced the gold coat and gave it to Sarah. As she looked at it carefully, it was stained with blood. It seemed to me, she said, the price of his life. The brethren had carried that poke 1,700 miles to return it to her. With that, notwithstanding the loss of her husband, as difficult as that was, at least she had that blessing. With that gold, she was able to outfit herself to make the journey west, taking another family with her, arriving in the Salt Lake Valley September the 4th, 1852. She married again to Joel Ricks and settled in Cache Valley, where she faithfully served 10 years as one of the first Relief Society presidents in Logan. She is buried in the Logan City Cemetery. 
Now, I hope that there's a descendant of the Ricks Allen family here watching tonight, because with part of that gold that Sarah had received, she made two gold bands, two rings. And when we were working on these Mormon battalion episodes, I went to every scholar I could find. No one knew what happened to both of those rings. They were passed down through the family. That we did know. But where those rings eventually wound up, I never could learn. I would love to know. Two more stories, and then I'll call it good for tonight. In the last fireside, the Colton family was represented. And one of your cousins sent me the following story. One of the most touching love stories of the Mormon battalion, of the women left behind, is told of Philander and Polly Colton. This is how they met. There was a beautiful petite brunette with large brown eyes, Polly Matilda Merrill. She was considered to be the prettiest girl in town and often the center of male attention. Well, she caught the interest of Philander Colton. He bragged to the boys that he would kiss Polly Merrill. Well, accepting that challenge from the boys at a country party, Philander walked up, grabbed her by the shoulders, and planted a big kiss on her cheek. She turned around and slapped him angrily. But Philander was unrepentant. He did not feel bad. In fact, he bragged to his fellows, quote, I told the fellows I would and I shall do many other times in the future. Meaning I told them I would kiss you and I intend to kiss you many more times in the future. I can't imagine. He must have been such a suave fellow because sure enough, he made good on his promise and Philander and Polly were married in 1833. Not long after that, they joined the church and eventually, as you will predict, they arrived in Council Bluffs where Philander enlisted in the Mormon battalion, leaving his dear wife behind with four young children. Now, adding to the anxiety, and this is a story I've heard before, but I don't have all the details, adding to Polly's anxiety, as Philander marched away with the Mormon battalion, her son, I don't know if he was nine years old or 11 years old. He was just a pup. Her son, Charles Edwin, stole away from Council Bluffs and joined his father and marched the entire way to San Diego. Philander finished the march, was released from service, and returned to Iowa at Christmas time, making the holiday an especially precious and joyful occasion. Well, from there, the Colton family immigrated and went on to the Salt Lake Valley, where they spent many happy years together, and Philander worked as a brick mason, a plasterer, and Polly cared for a household, <laughs> can you imagine, of 11 children. And then, and this is the reason I tell you the story, somewhere I've got to find the rest of the story of Charles Edwin, but I don't know at all. On August 13th, 1891, at the age of 73, Polly Matilda Merrill Colton passed away. 
she died. While she was bedridden and expected to die, family members warned Philander that she was dying. He responded firmly, quote, no, she won't leave me. When we were married, she promised to stay with me, and she has never broken a promise yet, end of quote. That's a remarkable thing to say about your spouse. Well, Polly died. Philander instructed the family, and I quote, don't bury her until I die. He said, when you hear a loud clap of thunder, I shall pass away also. As recorded in the local newspaper, two days later on August 15th, in the midst of a cloudless summer sky, a loud clap of thunder sounded. Philander Colton closed his eyes and died. United in life, they were united in death. One last remarkable story, and so many more that I wish I had time to tell. One of my heroes of the battalion, of course, is my own great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, John Cox. But another one is Melissa Burton. Let me tell you briefly the story of Melissa Burton. She was born March 2nd, 1828 in Ontario, Canada. When she was 10 years old, she was baptized a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Her family came to Nauvoo. When the church left Nauvoo in 1846, Melissa and her family went with them. As they journeyed across Iowa, I don't know where the relationship began, but on the 2nd of June, 1846, at Mount Pisgah in Iowa, Melissa Burton married William Corey. She was 18 years old. Just days later, the call came for volunteers to join the Mormon battalion. Melissa knew that William would join because he was a military man. Well, initially, William joined the Mormon battalion, and the idea was that Melissa would stay behind. But she said, quote, if he must go, I want to go. Why must women always stay behind and worry about their husbands when they could just as well march beside them? Now, these are long before the days of feminism, but this would not be the last time that Melissa Corey would speak her mind. Well, she was appointed or hired, as it were, as a laundress. Each company was allowed four laundresses. She went along as a laundress in Company B, leaving her family was very difficult. In fact, she would never see her mother in mortality again. Her mother died and was buried along the Missouri River in 1846. When the company marched out in July of 1846, bound for Fort Leavenworth, Melissa went with them. From there, Melissa and the battalion, by now there are more than 30 women and a number of children marching with the battalion, when they leave Fort Leavenworth, by the time they arrive in Santa Fe, and when they leave Santa Fe to go across New Mexico, Arizona, and the Imperial Desert of California, there are only four women now traveling with the battalion. Melissa is one of them. And as I told you last time, from the moment they started across Arizona and the Imperial Desert of California, the hardships were unspeakable the hunger and the thirst 
and the difficulty and the long marches and the days without sleep. She was there through all of that, marching beside her husband. Somewhere in Arizona, Melissa learned that she was expecting a child. She did her best to hide that pregnancy and the unrelenting nausea that accompanied it. Day after day, through all that the battalion went through, Melissa went through it too. She was wise enough to ration their food so that they didn't run out. They didn't eat it all at the beginning and have nothing for the end. She rationed their food. And on those days of endless marching across those hot desert sands, Melissa carried a pebble in her pocket, which she would slip into her mouth to keep her mouth moist and help generate saliva and lessen the feeling of thirst. Finally, in January of 1847, Melissa, having made it through now all the way to San Diego, they stood on the shores of the Pacific. I think Kevin shared with me last time, one battalion soldier quipped, we came not with flags flying, but with rags flying. They were exhausted, worn out, and their clothing was in rags. As to what they accomplished, I'll remind you that back in Santa Fe, Colonel Philip St. George Cook did not want to take command of a bunch of Mormon farmers. But when they reached Mission San Luis Rey on the Pacific, Colonel Cook said, and mind you, he's speaking of the women as well, history may be searched in vain for an equal march of infantry. Melissa and William were among those of Company B who were sent to serve in San Diego. There they would love and serve the locals. It was also while they were there that Melissa assisted Sylvia Hunter in giving birth, one of the other women of the battalion who had marched all that way. She came into San Diego expecting a child just like Melissa. She gave birth there in San Diego, named the little boy Diego, and then both mother and son passed away. You can imagine how that would have made Melissa anxious. When they were released from service, Melissa and William started north. It was in Monterey, California, when Melissa Corey finally gave birth on October 2nd, 1847. They named the little boy William Corey Jr. He died just a few days later. They buried him there in Monterey. Many decades later, Melissa Corey came back to Monterey searching for the grave of her little boy but could not find it. Continuing on to the north, Melissa and William fell in with the company that I mentioned to you earlier. Some of the details of what happened at Tragedy Springs comes from Melissa Corey's account. They fell in with the Browett Holmes Company and were part of the group that was determined to blaze a new wagon road over the Sierra Nevada mountains south of Lake Tahoe. It took them, now this is after the Tragedy Springs experience, it took them six long weeks to build a wagon road over Carson's Pass. But the beauty of it is, Melissa was right there with them, perhaps the only woman in the company to do so, I don't know. But when they finished, that would become the principal route 
of the miners into California. 200,000 plus miners and immigrants would cross over that road built by Melissa Corey and the Browett Holmes Company. They finally got into the Salt Lake Valley in late 1848. Two and a half years it had taken them from the time they left Council Bluffs until they arrived in the Salt Lake Valley. Melissa wrote, we were glad to get here, I can tell you. This was the promised land, the land she had dreamed of. But that winter of 1848 would prove to be oh so very harsh and cold. On the morning of February 6, 1849, at minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit, Melissa gave birth to her second child, a little girl that they named Melissa. Not too long after that, on the 7th of March, William, suffering from consumption, tuberculosis, starvation, and exposure, succumbed and passed away. In time, Melissa Corey would marry again William H. Kimball and bear seven more children. This woman, tough of faith and tender of heart, followed her husband and the prophets more than 3,000 miles on one of the most difficult marches in our history to reach the Salt Lake Valley, the Promised Land. Many years later, when she passed away, a sermon was preached at her funeral by her nephew, Elder Orson F. Whitney, who would become a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He referred to Melissa as, quote, true as steel to her convictions. Her family loves and remembers and adores her for her sacrifice, her courage, and her faith. Then in time, in 1994, the state of California named a mountain after her, Melissa Corey Peak, 9,700 and some feet high, just near the trail over Carson Pass that Melissa and the Browett Holmes Company hoped to blaze. Now, brothers and sisters, they may not name a mountain after us, but I have this conviction that if we are true as steel to our convictions, heaven will remember us and lift us up to stand with the Lord on that great day of his coming. My dear brothers and sisters, do your duty. The Lord loves you. They may not name a mountain peak after you, but they will certainly prepare a mansion for you somewhere high above. God bless you, brothers and sisters. I hope you are well, and if you're not well, I hope and pray that the Lord blesses you to become that way. And again, thank you, good night, and God bless. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week.